Screen time. Screen time. On News Talk with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, writer, director, actor Tom McCarthy, the maker of movies like Spotlight, The Station Agent, and also an actor in things like The Wire. And he also co-wrote Up, talks to me about his new movie, Stillwater, a great new movie starring Matt Damon. The Most Beautiful Boy in the World, a fascinating new documentary all about the young man Bjorn Anderson, who was cast in Visconti's Death in Venice and his life was never quite the same again. Plus Mark Ryle and all the week's new releases, including The Suicide Squad. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app. Powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm, apart from this week and the last couple of weeks. And indeed next week. And then it's all back to normal. But it's going out at 9 for the last couple of weeks because of the Lions Tour and the rugby down in South Africa. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. Now, in movie news, I was fascinated to read at certainly the time of talking to you, Scarlett Johansson is going to war with Disney. She's suing them because of the dual release of her recent movie, Black Widow. The fact that they also released it on their own Disney streaming service, Disney Plus. Now, you had to pay for it. She basically said that that dual strategy had reduced her compensation, which was based partly on box office receipts and what was supposed to be an exclusive run in the cinemas. Now, Disney hit back, saying there's no merit to what she's saying, and that the fact that it was on both cinemas and also the streaming service significantly enhanced her ability to earn more compensation. That's on top of the $20 million she got so far. But it's very interesting, and it's instructive of, I think, what's coming down the line. There are going to be these battles Uh, in various guises between studios and streaming services and particularly the studios that have both a streaming arm and a cinema arm. There is going to be more of this kind of stuff with actors and studios and streaming services. I imagine this is the tip of the iceberg. Now in TV this week, I was watching this. So why do you think your father suggested you come for counselling? I think because my mother died and he can't talk about it. And my sister and I didn't speak for a year because she thinks I tried to sleep with her husband and because I spent most of my adult life using sex to deflect from the screaming void inside my empty heart. I'm good at this. Although I don't really do that anymore. You close with your family? (laughs) We get on with it. Do you talk? God, no. Any friends? Sorry? Any friends? Um... No, I don't really have time for... Well, have a guinea pig, but she blows hot and cold. (laughs) Not a joke. Yeah, now that's a clip from Fleabag. Why am I playing that? That's two years old at this stage. Well, I was on Pat Kenny during the week doing my regular look back at some great TV shows you might have missed. And I did Fleabag. So I watched the entire two series all last week. And I just want to tell you again, in case you haven't gotten on board the Fleabag Express, you should do it. It's on Amazon Prime, both series. Phoebe Waller-Bridge playing a lost 30-something-year-old who constantly talks to the camera, to us, brings us in, breaks the fourth wall, and she's negotiating a very complicated family life, a difficult love life. She's trying to 
engaged in a lot of sex, certainly in the first series, in a bid to, as she says there in the clip, fill that void in her life. Season two turns into something wonderful with Andrew Scott coming on board as a priest. He's just known as the hot priest who she falls in love with. The writing in Fleabag is incredible. It's heartfelt. It's hilariously funny. It's bracingly honest. The acting is wonderful. Phoebe Waller-Bridge is immense in it, as is Andrew Scott, as is everyone who's in it. Kristen Scott Thomas has a brief cameo in it. She is brilliant in it. It's a show that rides that perfect line between sincerity and hilarity, and it does it absolutely brilliantly. Now, I spoke to you probably about Fleabag two years ago, but I rewatched it all in one week, and I loved every moment of it, and particularly season two is just incredible writing for television and young scriptwriters of the world pay attention because that's how to tell stories uh, in 25 minutes each episode there isn't a piece of writing or a piece of acting that is in any way wasted Fleabag is amazing uh, and I was just reminded of that this week so I wanted to share that with you now take a listen to this I'm sorry I just I, I can't talk to that guy anymore he was just saying some horrible things like what? Like, he just wants to put an Arab kid in jail. You know, he doesn't care which one. That's it? That's it? What do you mean, that's it? He's a racist. Okay, he's a racist. We still gotta talk to him. No, I don't talk to him, no. Well, he might know something. No, he doesn't know something. Bill, we're not gonna send an innocent boy to jail. My daughter is innocent. What? Oh, I can't believe this conversation. Well, then... You live in some fancy-ass world, honey, because I work with guys like that all the time. No, but it doesn't matter, okay? It's not right. I'm not saying it's right. I'm trying to get my little girl out of jail. That's all I give a about. And you sound very American right now. Good. I am. Yeah, and you're also a stranger here. You don't understand shit. Yeah, now that's Matt Damon in a brilliant performance in a new movie called Stillwater. Matt Damon in this movie is playing... A kind of out-of-work oil worker from Oklahoma. His daughter, who he's been estranged from, is in prison in Marseille for a murder she insists she didn't commit. So Matt Damon's character, Bill Baker, makes kind of periodic visits to give her news, give her supplies and stuff like that, but he's coming from the States. But on a recent visit, his daughter, Alison, played really well by Abigail Breslin, gives her father some new evidence about the case. So he decides to take it into his own hands and an attempt to exonerate his daughter. But it's Marseille. He's very at odds with the land he's in as this kind of middle American yank. And it begins as kind of a thriller, but it gets a bit more human then because he gets to meet this local woman, played really well by the French actress Camille Cotin, who people might know from Call My Agent. She's one of the agents in it. And her daughter as well. And he becomes very friendly with them and they help him with the case. It's a really good movie. It's a thriller. It's heartfelt. Matt Damon, it's the performance of a lifetime for me. It was directed by Tom McCarthy. Tom McCarthy directed and wrote Spotlight. He made The Station Agent, a brilliant movie. He's acted. He was in The Wire. He was in Meet the Parents. He co-wrote Up, that brilliant Disney movie. And Stillwater is his latest release. And it is a great movie. And I got to talk to Tom McCarthy about Stillwater, which is opening in Irish cinemas, next Friday, the 6th of August. Take a listen to this. Matt Damon is one of those people in a way he's been around a long time and he's like a Tom Cruise or a Tom Hanks that he's so much baggage and people know who he is straight away. But I was so surprised just 
and maybe I shouldn't have been, but how he was able to play this kind of middle America, you know, out of work oil rig person. I forgot it was Matt Damon for most of the movie. I just yeah. thought he was brilliant in it. And, and, and as I say, we shouldn't be surprised, but you must be delighted with how he prayed the protagonist in this. I am, you know, in, in short, I am. Like, <laughs> Next I, question. Yeah, let's move on, shall we? Oh, let's just call it a day. Um, no, uh, I am, you know, like, look, I've been a, like a lot of people, a fan of Matt's for a long time. We've tried to work together in the past, but when I started like zeroing in on Bill and talking with my writers about it, I just kept having this feeling like, oh man, this could be the role for him. And I feel like maybe as a director outside of like, and as a director speaking in terms of Matt, my biggest job was to really give him the permission to get lost in this character. Like, mm -hmm. I think, you know, you're right. He has all this baggage. It's part of the reason I wanted to cast him because he does have that sort of Hanks. He's got integrity. He's people mm. trust him. Yeah. Even if he's playing a trained CIA assassin, you're like, wow, he kind of, <laughs> we, I'm with him. You know what I mean? Like people, it's just who Matt is when you meet him, when you spend time with him, it's just, it's a part of his, his person, you know, it's just his part of his personality. So we wanted to play on that a little bit, but really, I think in terms of the character, man, I just really would, you know, he just, you know, Matt had just worked with Christian Bale in that Ford versus Ferrari. And Matt speaks so well about everyone he works with. It's, mm -hmm. I always know that about him, but he was really just like complimentary about Bale's ability to get lost, you know, and to go mm -hmm. deep and to disappear in his characters. And, I would just sat up nowadays. I was like, "There's no reason that you can't do that. You have the full, you have the full bag, you know, the full uh, chest of, of of tools that you need to accomplish that. You just got to let yourself go there and, and dig in." And and you know, I just kind of kept quietly repeating that. It wasn't like uh, I can't take credit for him because it was. Him. <laughs> I felt like I was just sort of letting him go and saying, "Like, look, if you go, if you miss, if you go too far, if you fall off, I'll, then mm. I'll be there. Then I'll be mm. right at your side." But you know. And I feel like once he locked in, you know, we spent the kind of four days in Oklahoma together, which are really, I think, transformative to him and really spending time with these roughnecks. And I could just see him kind of watching him and it would, we would leave and he would start, you know, working on the character and that gait and that posture and that strength. And, um, you know, by the time we got to Marseille and started rehearsing, I felt like he really had a handle on Bill Baker. He knew where he was going to go with this character. Yeah, well, he, he certainly went deep on it. I'm just wondering, I read some of the production notes, obviously, as well as seeing the movie, but how much or how little was the case of Amanda Knox in your head or, or how much of her story was any inspiration for this at all? Did it light a fire for you? It, it really piqued my interest. Uh, it, and it's it sort of like, but I wanted to get away from it as quickly as possible too. Yeah. I just didn't want to tell that story. Sure. I thought, you know, I thought maybe in the sensationalism, people lost track of around the world, at least probably not in England, but around the world of Romero's, you know, death uh, that as it got so sensationalized. And I just felt like enough on that story. But I love the idea of this American girl being incarcerated. And, you know, I think as an American director trying to find a way in, I wanted to make a movie abroad and I was trying to find a way in a little mm -hmm. bit knewing I had to have somewhat of an American perspective because I'm not European and I'm not French, you know? Um, and it's just not done a lot where Americans come over here and make these solid films that are like really immersed in the culture and the people. So I needed an inroad and I think Bill Baker was my in. Of course, I had to first get to know and understand Bill Baker. So I, that was the initial impulse, like woman in jail, father come to visit it. What's the story that, uh, that emerges from there? And 
you, as you probably read in the, in the, in the press notes, like I worked with this uh, writer, Marcus Hinchy first like 10 years ago in a script and it wasn't bad, but it, it didn't work for me. It was mm. just a really, it was really just a thriller, you know, and I, I, I lacked dimension for me. And, and I felt mostly as a director, I didn't have a point of view on the script. Mm -hmm. So I put it down. And when I approached it seven years later, the world had changed. We were in a very different place. It was the beginning of the Trump presidency and Trump administration. And I was, we were all asking a lot of questions about ourselves and our country and our countrymen. And um, I, at that point, reached out to these two French writers, Thomas Bidigan and Noé Debra. And I was like, I have this script. I don't, I like the setup. And I think it might be a way to talk about what's going on in my country, but in France. And can you guys read it and can we readdress it? Can we, you know, and, and, and we just started this collaboration. They would agree. They're like, we like the setup, but we don't like the story. And I said, we can recreate the story entirely, which we did. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it gave me a chance to kind of process abroad what was happening uh, at home. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of funny, but I wasn't going to go here straight away. I'm talking to you from Dublin, just outside Dublin here in Ireland. And your last movie, Spotlight, went gangbusters uh, here in Ireland and around the world. And I'm just wondering, were you surprised how much of an appetite there was for Spotlight? Like, I know you put your faith in it and you thought it was a good movie and all, but it, it was so well received. I wonder, was it, did the world need that story at that time? Or have you ever thought about that since? You know, a little bit, but I don't spend a ton of time analyzing that because I feel like you know, my job is just to focus on making a good movie. I try every movie I make, you know, and then there's, mm. there is a certain, uh, certain amount of kind of events that come into play when you're putting out a movie, right? Um, mm. A certain synergy to that, that you can't always um, predict. I think what you can, you know, I always feel about this. We talk about marketing materials, how to read this movie. Look, the way you do it is you make a good movie. You make a yeah. movie that takes people on a ride. And I think, Spotlight really did. You're right. It struck a chord at a time where I think Americans were needed that story for some reason. And as you said, uh, the larger global audience. And I remember my time specifically in Ireland mm -hmm. being very intense. Those, yeah. My time with the press was just, okay. they, they were very intense interviews and there was a lot of um, anger and rage mm -hmm. and um, resentment and emotion in the conversations and talkbacks and interviews, um, all that stuff. So, um, you know, uh, it was just one of those stories that really had its moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope I wasn't one of those angry people when I spoke to you four years ago because I, I thought it was a fantastic film. No, As I, is, and by the way, I don't mean angry at the movie. I sure. Mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. Large part, it was angry at the church. I remember it was yeah. in Ireland. It's the first time I heard one of the one reporters said to me, "Well, like, start his conversation. We're like, well, look." As you know, we and you're live. You know, we live in a sort of post-God Ireland now. And I was like, post-God Ireland. Wow. wow, that's something I never thought I would hear <laughs> spoken in Ireland. I'm glad I'm not. I'm not sure if we do, but anyway, <laughs> I know I, I was taken back by that one too. But it was an example of like how people were feeling about it, and I think it. it I think that movie struck that chord. You know, yeah, it certainly did. I was telling my wife yesterday who you were. Right. And I was saying he's the guy in The Wire and he's the guy who directed Spotlight. And you know the way you love the movie Up? He co-wrote that. And I'm not trying to blow smoke off your ass, but or <laughs> up your ass. But there, there are a lot of people who try and do different things in your business and it doesn't work out. But you're 
very good at all these things you've done. All those things I've listed out have been remarkable pieces of work. What is it? You're, are you just looking for a kind of edification in your work life? Or are you now finished with a lot of that stuff? Or are you just going to direct? Because you've been very successful in writing, directing, and acting. Yeah. So how did you pull it off? And are you going to continue to do it, I guess, is my question. Yeah, I'm taking dance very seriously right now. <laughs> and I'm working on this piece that I think is good. And you're going to... Really, t-shirts. Move, really like t-shirts. Move the needle this sort of interpretive <laughs> dance piece um now you know look i it, it's it's simpler than that but you're right i haven't always laid out my career path i started as an actor right i, I guess yeah. my family in new jersey they didn't do anything in the arts i always had an intrigue by it and in in, in university i started to get more intrigued and i I followed the path and I was lucky enough to, to have some success in it. So I was just happy to be an actor. And then in my twenties, I really started to fall in love with cinema. And then I started thinking about movies differently. And then I started to think, why don't I write one? I was always writing a little bit. I was writing sketch comedy and I was writing one act plays when I was at Yale. And I thought, you know, I'm going to take a shot at writing screenplay. And that was the station agent, which sort mm. of changed my life quite yeah. quickly. And, um, you know, so I've always just gone, I was an actor who started writing and started directing and I would go back to acting more often earlier in my career when I did The Wire, when I did, uh, you know, uh, Michael Clayton or not, mm -hmm. or Duplicity, I had a voice in Michael Clayton, I shouldn't say I did it, uh, but movies like that, and I can't remember the other movies I was in right now, um, but you know, that was always great. I love the balance. It's gotten harder to do that now because my career has gotten a bit more full and my writing career has gotten a bit more full in other projects. So I miss acting. I hope I keep doing it. And I think there's examples of some directors who continue to write and direct and even mm -hmm. act along the way. And, um, you know, for me, it's all storytelling, right? It's all yeah. it's part of the same thing. So I don't just feel like I'm trying to run around and do everything. For me, it's all, it's all really part of the same, I don't know, puzzle. Wonderful. Well, listen, Stillwater is a fantastic film, so I hope the weather stays fine for you. Thanks a lot for talking to me. Hey, it's been great talking to you, and uh, it's been lovely here, but I'm ready to get back to New York right now. <laughs> stay God safe speed. and healthy. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks, man. Yeah. Yes, Tom McCarthy there talking to me about, well, all sorts of things. But most notably, I guess, his new movie, Stillwater, which I'm giving a massive thumbs up to, which stars Matt Damon and Abigail Breslin, and it will be in cinemas next Friday. That's the 6th of August. Up next, Mark Ryle on the week's new releases. Screen Time on News Talk. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. We turn to the week's new releases and the big new release of the week is The Suicide Squad. And the definite article is very important in that. And also Jungle Cruise, uh, which is in cinemas and also on Disney Plus Premier Access. I'm joined by Screen Time's resident critic who was away last week, but he's back. I'm delighted to say Mark Royal is with us. How are you, Mark? I'm good, John. How are you? Good, you were off last week, weren't you? I, I didn't yeah, dream I, that. I, it's very, very difficult to keep track of what is going yeah, on at the moment. Yeah, I know, I know. What, I with know. The, what the heat and whatnot, I, I really don't know. <laughs> I know. Who are you? What are we to do to talk about? It's taken all of my effort just uh, blinking. Is, is <laughs> Yeah. Well, listen, this won't hurt a bit. So, The Suicide Squad, and this confused me slightly as in because I was like, is there not a movie from six years ago called The Suicide Squad? But that's actually called Suicide Squad. So, The Suicide Squad. Squad is a sequel to Suicide Squad, right? It is. A, it's yeah. I, I suppose it is. Um, uh, Suicide Squad, the 2016 movie. Um, mm. It was directed by David Ayer, and it was it, it was not guaranteed a sequel at all. It it did make a mint, 
but it was not well received by comic book fans. Mm. And there was also a, a Harley Quinn spin-off in 2019 called Birds of Prey. Which was pretty ropey, wasn't it? Uh, it was, and it also didn't do great business. Mm. So, I mean, the track record for this is, is poor. And also, this kind of sequel has been in limbo since then. And I think there's been the guts of 40 different directors have signed up and dropped out over the, over the, the intervening period. But, um, guardians of the galaxies, James Gunn, yes. as, as you said, he's added the definite article mm. and he's pressed the reset button. And here we are. And unfortunately now I didn't get to see this this week. I was sunning myself on a rock or something like that, but uh, the cast is is huge. Like Mar- I was, I was going down through it. I, I I nearly lost count. Viola Davis, Margot Robbie, uh, Sylvester Stallone has a, a vo- like it's there's about ten leads or certainly there, ten really well known actors and actresses in it. There is. I mean, it's some uh, Sylvester Stallone is 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 voice work and um a lot of the I can't really talk about how many. <laughs> there's stuff that happens within the first ten minutes. Okay, that will you know um cut that cast list down by okay leave it there so so yeah. what, what what's going on in this so what's one? going on in, in a nutshell margot robbie um idris elba and john cena again um and a bunch of superpowered convicts with these uh, remote controlled bombs in their heads they get dropped into a war zone on a south american island called corto maltese and they attempt to overturn a military coup and they also discover a secret facility that stores a giant cosmic space starfish that's it in a nutshell do you have questions i i have several let me start then the, the cosmic shark guy that's voiced by sylvester stallone isn't it I, sylvester stallone is a is a half man half shark yeah he's kind of fulfilling the same role as um Groot in guardians of the galaxy although he has a slightly larger vocabulary um it is I, what okay it's this is a movie that is acutely aware of its own ridiculousness, mm-hmm. as you might tell, and it it revels in it and it makes it a virtue. Okay, and it is in not a similar a, Guardians of the Galaxy way because that's a bit daft as well. This is the over 16s version of the you know Guardians of the Galaxy is much more family friendly. Yes. This is not. Um, it it it's it's not polished. And it's not dark and it's not edgy like some of these comic book things. It is very rough around the edges and I think it's all the better for that. And for once, I didn't come away with the impression that I was being sold a franchise that I didn't ask for. And mm. I, For example, I can't even remember what most of the characters in this were called. I think Idris Elba's character is, is blood something or death something or, or blood death. But <laughs> the, po- the point is, nobody cares. Um, there's none of this, oh, you know, what drew me to the character was his journey of emotional growth that I found fascinating. Um, the Suicide Squad doesn't try to pretend that it's it's an allegory of, of prejudice or of the evils of globalism or anything like that. It is just a big, dumb movie full of dumb characters. And it's it's pretty great. OK, so you were pleasantly entertained and perhaps surprisingly entertained. I was, yeah. No, the other thing is it made me laugh out loud more than once. So for me, that is a win. Yes. Um, there's a running joke involving uh, David David Des- Desmalchian. He's the he's the kind of go to Hollywood's go to creepy weirdo of the moment. Mm-hmm. But his character, he, he's got mother issues, and there's this running joke involving his mother issues that I found really really funny. Yeah. And also the the you know the half man half shark thing voiced by Sylvester Stallone. He is very, very funny. Okay. Um, 
Well, I always say Sylvester Stallone, he's made a huge amount of turkeys, but some of his good films are very good and he's actually a very smart guy when you hear him talk. So it doesn't surprise me that he could do something funny, you know, voicing a shark man. He does the voice, but I mean, there is, to be honest, there is not much of Sylvester Stallone in it. But having said all that, I mean, some of the dialogue, it could have been a lot smarter and sharper. And a lot of the laughs, they rely more on, on delivery than what was put down on paper. Um, and Idris Elba in, in, in that, he's, he's very, very good. And he does an awful lot of the heavy lifting here. I think he, I don't think he was, this, he's not the same character that, that Will Smith was in the, in the previous movie. But I think what happened was he kind of stepped in to fulfill a kind of similar role because of, I don't know what happened to Will Smith, but, um, the other, the other thing, the other good thing about Idris Elba is that he his character is English, so he's not made to do a bad American accent. Okay, and that helps an awful lot. Um, on Margot Robbie, though, I I really don't understand the appeal of Harley Quinn as a character. I find that that Cindy Lauper shtick quite grating, and and her dialogue just isn't funny enough. And that that's not down to a lack of effort on Margot Robbie's part because she really throws herself into it with gusto. But I think at this point in her career, I think she she might be beyond Harley Quinn. Mm, okay and then finally the action sequences are good they are um now every time we've reviewed a comic book movie up till now i will probably have given out about the final act yes um yes, they are true. sometimes even the middle act <laughs> well the thing about this is right um the, the final act is usually a complete mess and the final act of Suicide Squad is is a bit of a mess and it is a very, very long mess. It seems to last for about 50 minutes and I was checking my watch a lot. But I will say this, it's an original mess. Okay. Um, everything gets thrown at the screen and a lot of that works. Okay. And at a certain point, it, this turns into this kind of Japanese kaiju giant monster movie. And there is also something very, very Doctor Who, both in the the concept of what's going on in the last 20 or so minutes and also in the look and feel of it. It does feel like an episode of Doctor Who with blood and cussing. But, you know, regardless of all of that, it is definitely unique. Um, Margot Robbie swimming with a thousand rats inside the eyeball of a giant fish is not something I thought I would ever see. So it is it's there's certainly nothing else like it. And I think that has to be. Applauded. applauded very good okay well we applaud your review i wasn't expecting you to, to to like it like that i don't know why but you know history has taught me not to expect too much with you and superheroes you know it's a refreshing change okay so what would you say stars wise i'm gonna give it a four wow okay yep. four stars for the suicide squad from mark it's, royal it's different and at this yeah. point in the game i think that's a good thing yeah okay well let's take a quick clip of the suicide squad you gotta be kidding me you're gonna risk the entire mission for a mental defective dress as a court jester this coming from a guy that wears a toilet seat on his head we don't leave one of our own behind hopefully harley's still alive no funny business colonel these are dangerous people team two is clear to go fire up. three two what are you guys doing you we're, we're here to save you you were gonna save me it was a really good plan too well i can go back inside and you can still do it that's patronizing i'm so sorry harley quinn blood sport that was a clip from the suicide squad which mark ryle gave four i haven't seen it but i think i'm gonna have to based on that and uh, we uh, put that on the poster mark <laughs> woke mark ryle from a superhero dogmatic slumber or something like that
That's beautiful, John. Yeah, I think it might be a ripoff of Kant. But anyway, who who, who cares? Emmanuel Kant, the philosophy. Yeah. Oh, we better go. Okay, so the next movie I have seen, it's in cinemas this week, and it's also on premiere access on cinemas from Friday. And I should say, uh, The Suicide Squad is in cinemas from Friday as well. But you can also watch Jungle Cruise in cinemas, and it's also on Disney because it's a Disney movie. Premier Access, twenty one ninety nine euro. Mark, a movie based on a theme park ride is yep. often not a good idea. Uh, do you think Jungle Cruise was a good idea? Is is when is it ever a good idea? Mm. Um, I you know what I've seen worse. Um, okay, it's I, I think the best thing I can say about Jungle Cruise, and to be fair about it, is that it's it's great right up to the point. That it's not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Back up the truck slightly. Just give us a, a slight presse, if you would. What's, what's going, going on? on? Yeah. It is, uh, it's set in 1916 in the middle of World War One, and brother and sister, Emily Blunt, and to my surprise, Jack Whitehall. Yeah, um, I didn't recognize him at first without his beard. and I just I didn't either. I thought, yeah. oh my God, that's Jack Whitehall. Anyway, brother and sister, uh, they, um, they engage the services of Dwayne Johnson's steamboat skipper to take them down the Amazon in search of a legend called the Tears of the Moon, which is a MacGuffin that can cure any disease. And in this endeavor, they are pursued by Jesse Plemons, mad German U-boat captain who wants the Tears of the Moon for himself. Mm. And, you know, it's not like the African Queen, but just it reminded me slightly of the premise of the African Queen where Catherine Hepburn is is brought up some river on a boat in Africa by uh, Humphrey Bogart, I think it was. And it's, you know, that's where the similarities end i guess but it was also the african queen was also based on a on a, a theme park ride as well i think was it no no i did yeah i, I thought i thought you were pulling my leg but did that pop into your head the african oh, of queen? course yeah, yeah yeah i mean it's obvious you can't get away from the african queen um so i, I so i yeah go on no, you go on. Okay, I'll go on. No, I was going to say, so I liked their, The Rock, the Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I thought he was kind of good as this roustabout bounder type of captain of a ship who's just, you know, maybe in it for himself. And I thought he worked well against Emily Blunt. It didn't really hold my interest for very long, though. And I said earlier in the week in the hard shoulder, my son, who's normally up for watching all these things, got bored by it. I, I just kind of, it was just too obvious what was going to happen the whole time or something. Now, I know these movies, you know, it's kind of a kid's movie, so you can't expect too much, but I was kind of disappointed by it. It's certainly a kid's movie, but there's nothing wrong with that. No, absolutely not. I, I sing about it, but I'm just saying it. this left me cold and my kids yeah. somewhat cold. I think the problem for me is that the, the, the back end of the movie, which mm. is kind of the second half, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it is a bit of a mess. Um, at, at the, the, the first half, has got, you've got all these really charming practical effects and, and physical sets, but they're all done away with. And then after that, the post-production CG effects and the green screen work are flipped into overdrive and mm. there's a definite definite shift in tone between the first half and the second half and most of what comes after that point reminded me of you know the very worst elements of the pirates of the caribbean yeah because i actually thought in the early parts this bits of this is like raiders of the lost ark and i know that's well, your favorite movie so, so i far. have to be careful but it was a ripping yarn at the start but yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 it ran out of steam it did, yeah. No, for the first hour, I was thinking to myself, between this and Cruella, I'm really going to have to give Disney some credit. Mm. And there is a lot of good stuff uh, here. It reminded me a lot of the 1999 version 
of The Mummy with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz, yeah. which is a movie that I love, and it's perfect bank holiday viewing, I think. Do you love that movie? Wow. I, I do, yeah. I think yeah. it's great in the bank holiday. And I think what Blunt and, and Rachel, uh, Blunt and, and, and Whitehall, are, are, they kind of share the same kind of dynamic as Rachel Weisz and, and John Hanna. Well, um, oddly enough, can I interrupt you there to tell sure, you, yeah. I've been to Universal Studios, which is, you know, one of those theme park rides. And just because we mentioned theme park rides, The Mummy, they have a mummy ride and it's the best, you know, roller coaster type of thing I've ever been on in my life. You hurtle through the darkness backwards. It's amazing. I know this is a film show, but if you're ever in Universal Studios in Orlando, go on the mummy. It is brilliant. It's a chicken and egg thing. Which came first, <laughs> the, the, the roller coaster ride or the movie? I think the movie. Um, but... the, the, on uh, Dwayne Johnson, he was the, he's the producer here as well. And I think a good producer serves the picture. And I'm, I'm not convinced that this was a good fit for Dwayne Johnson. You didn't like um, him as the ship's captain. I did. I just think that he doesn't seem comfortable at all with the material in the, the more talky first half. Um, mm. And also... I'll just say, like Blunt is ridiculously good at what she does, but she she didn't have a hope of convincing me that there was an ounce of chemistry between her character and Johnson's at all. Okay, um, I, I saw a bit of chemistry there, but anyway, maybe. do you want to talk about Jesse Plemons? Well, I thought not... I thought he was probably the best thing in it. Yeah, he was. <laughs> I'm not sure what he was doing works in the context of a kids movie. I think he was channeling Werner Herzog, which yeah. is. It's a certainly an interesting choice in a sort of a Hearts of Darkness, Fitzcarraldo yeah. guy going mad in the jungle. Yeah, and he way. has this submarine in 1916 that's able to, you know, fire nuclear bombs, it seems. So yeah, he was very entertaining. He was. I really got a laugh out of it. I think it might be a bit esoteric, though, for for a kid's movie. Yeah, maybe. So what would you say stars-wise? I would have given this a four if it wasn't for all the CG. Wow. Wow. If it wasn't for all the CG, but, I'm, if, but for me, it's a three. Wow, you've had your Weetabix today or your Happy Pills. Because I'm only going to give it a two because okay. I'm usually sunnier towards these things. I think it had a lot to do with my kid getting bored, though, to be honest. Yeah, well. My wife tells me not to call him a kid. I mean, he's not a, you know, he's not of a farmyard, but uh, you know what I mean. He doesn't. In a sort of a Jimmy Cagney kind of a way. Yeah, no? here's looking at you, kid. <laughs> Which isn't Jimmy Cagney. Okay, <laughs> that's Jungle Cruise. Mark is giving it a three. He was verging on a four at one point, so, well, you know. Stay no. tuned, folks. He's going to be given five stars to Fast and Furious 10 if this keeps up. I am giving it a two. It is on cinemas, uh, in cinemas on Friday, the 30th of July, and it's on Disney Premier Access for 22 quid or 21.99. Mark, thanks a million. Thanks, John. Screen Time on News Talk. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time here on News Talk. I'm John Fardy. Now, The Most Beautiful Boy in the World is a new documentary that is getting a cinema release, selected cinemas, this Friday, the 30th of July. And it is a fascinating documentary. And you know I only talk to you about fascinating documentaries, but this truly is. There was a movie from 1971, which you may be well aware of, called Death in Venice. And it was based on a novella by Thomas Mann. And it was all about a character played by Dirk Bogart, who is in Venice and he becomes comes obsessed with a 15 year old boy uh, it's a very famous movie it's a good movie it was a very kind of art house movie i mean it's certainly a questionable movie in some ways because you have this aging man getting obsessed with a 15 year old boy who he sees all over venice the man who played that 15 year old boy in the movie was a real life actor who's still very much alive a 67 year old man called bjorn anderson 
The role changed his life, mostly for the worse, you would have to say. Bjorn Andersen had a strange, troubled childhood. His mother was missing, that's all I'll say. He was ostensibly raised by his grandmother, who was aware of what a beautiful-looking boy he was and wanted him to be famous almost. So Visconti, who made Death in Venice, was touring around Northern Europe looking for a beautiful boy. Yes, that does sound strange, and it was strange. And he went to a school and he found Bjorn Anderson. Uh, and this documentary is all about that casting, taking part in the movie. In that casting audition, Visconti asks him to strip to his underwear to get a proper look at him. So it is deeply unsettling in lots of ways. And the story moves on then to what happened to Bjorn in later life. He became an actor, he became a musician, he moved to Japan. He became really famous after this movie and particularly in a place like Japan where he was almost like a Beatle. They turned him into a pop star, he recorded records in Japan, he also was the inspiration for manga cartoons, his face was everywhere. His life didn't turn out too well as this documentary shows. He's very estranged from his own daughter, he has struggled with various addictions over the years. He clearly finds it hard to form attachments, I would say. You need to see this documentary. It is absolutely fascinating. There are elements of hope. On the whole, it's quite a sad story, and you can't help wondering how on earth some of this stuff was allowed to happen to a 15-year-old boy. It was directed by two Swedish directors, Christina Lindstrom and Christian Petri, and I got to talk to them about the most beautiful boy in the world. So, guys, you know, it's such an intriguing story, this young boy who became the most beautiful boy in the world and then the story of his life. How did it come to you or how did you decide that you were going to make a movie about this? It is such an intriguing story. And, and we have it was just one night when we were eating dinner with, with him because you have been working with him in a feature and you were eating dinner and, and I was joining and... I think before you knew that he was reluctant. Yes, Christina is saying it was like a story that was almost, you know, too perfect to see because it, we've been living with it be, being the same generation. You know, we always yeah. knew about Bjorn being the most beautiful boy in the world and it's a fascinating story, but somehow it was too obvious, you know, it or too close or something. So, mm -hmm. but then uh, all of a sudden we, we discussed that this is, it could be a fantastic film it's a strong, uh, because it's strong a, so, history. so strong and, and so beautiful and so sad and so emotional and Bjorn is such a great person also I known him a couple of years before you know working with him as a director so mm -hmm. I knew he had a great sense of humor and he, he was you know a very courageous and great person to be around it's tragedy of, of the piece is that had this never happened to Bjorn, there was still a lot of darkness in his life anyway. Uh, does Did part of you think, you know, and it, maybe it sounds a bit callous or harsh, but there is a great story here because you have on one hand the crazy time of being in this mo Visconti movie, but also his relationship with his mother, his father, you know, what happened there without giving any spoilers, that there was so much available to you as filmmakers. Uh, that's true. And, and, and a lot of the story about uh, Visconti and the film, the film, I mean, he always called it the film, uh, is, is yeah. interesting enough. But, but the story about his life uh, is, 
is so universal you can you can um, identify with and and then also it was like uh, when we started working because we did this film for a long time and we shot it took five years to shoot it so when we shot it we we discovered uh, more and more we knew of course that there were some archive material you know super eight films from his grandmother and so but the the it was so much. It was the amount we, we didn't it know. Was, uh, we had, we we'd never had any idea that this you know on all these recordings from his aunt and vinyl records from his mm. mother you know secret vinyl records and there was there was so much, which was right. for a documentary filmmaker that was like fantastic oh. uh, and hours and hours of listening to all these tape audio mm. tapes and and and. Um, finding this thesis when he talks as a little child. You watch it now, Death in Venice, 50 years ago as it is. And why did nobody say this is incredibly strange? You have this 70-year-old man touring the Baltics, looking for a beautiful boy to play in his film. And yet he talks about this being a perfect non-sexual love, like as if he even had to say that. It just, it just seemed very strange. Were you struck by, I don't know, the fact that nobody said stop at the time of the making of the movie or that there's something very strange here? Yes, I was struck when I was struck firstly when I saw, I mean, when I saw Death in Venice, that was Visconti. He was so, he had this impact and he could, I mean, more or less do what he wanted to do. Mm. He was uh, in that. Uh, I think in that at that period of time, fifty years ago, there were certain men that were so immensely powerful, like Visconti or Bergman or you know the, this kind of directors that uh, they could do pretty much what they wanted to. And it has come afterwards. It has. I saw some documentaries about Visconti where a lot of people stepped forward and said that he used people. Not only Bjorn, but his, you know, people he worked with, actors. Feeling used. Yeah. Mm. But it's, I mean, when you see, when you see the, when you see the footage from the um, casting, it is, I mean, it's so striking uh, to see. And we should say for listeners, he he asks Bjorn to strip to his underwear. Yeah. Yeah. He does, and 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 also when we found we we knew there must be a, a some press conference recorded from from Cam, uh, uh, and and we we looked for several years for that uh, footage, and when we found it mm-hmm. in Rome in a Rice archive, and when we saw this um, footage from from the press conference in Cam, when he's he's talking about Bjorn sitting beside him and saying that he was he was more beautiful last year. Beautiful last year when I found him, and everyone is laughing, and it's, it's and, horrible. And, and also, they're, they're sitting like I don't know, 500 journalists there, and someone asks a question Can we please hear the story of Bjorn Andresen? Mm. I can tell you, he says, because yeah. he doesn't know French. I can tell you, his yeah. and it's so horrible to see. Christian, seeing as, as you knew him, I was really surprised afterwards that uh, Bjorn has this bizarre career in Japan and learns Japanese, starts singing Japanese songs, uh, becomes a pop star like a beetle nearly, and, and manga cartoons are, he's the inspiration for them. Did, did you know that there was that aspect to his life before you started this documentary, that he was big in Japan? I knew that he was a 
so, once upon a time he had been a pop star then. Uh, that was about it. But I, I didn't know mm. sort of how, not big, not, not how big it was. <laughs> I, I, and the manga I didn't know about. And then finally, ha, has Bjorn seen the film? I, I presume he has. And what's many his reaction times, to it? Many times. Many, many times. times. Different um, versions. Different <laughs> versions. And, um, we had a version which was two and a half hour long that I think that's, he really liked that one. No, okay. But that was magical, actually, when we saw that first version and we were sitting in the Swedish Film Institute and um, they have a special cinema there for the director, which is a very cool, it's just 10 chairs, you know, beautiful uh, arm chairs with leather. And he was sitting there watching this two and a half hour. And we were, of course, uh, extremely nervous what, what he would think about it. And, but he was very happy. And, uh, and then ju just finally, you know, what, what comes away from the film is you, a, a viewer like myself, and I watched it with my wife, you feel sad for Bjorn. Uh, you, you just can't help it. He's, he's complicated relationships with all the important people in his life. And, and he's, had, he's been dealt a, 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 an unfair hand in life in some ways. How is he now at this stage, 67 years of age? What kind of place is he at in his life, do you think? I, I can tell you experience we had a couple of weeks ago. It was a, a sneak preview or something, you could say. That this is something called a film festival in Sweden called Bergman mm -hmm. Week. It's on Bergman's Island, Florida. And uh, well, this is a small, super small film festival. And our film was shown there with Bjorn. The preview. For, uh, preview with an audience. And uh, they asked questions and we Q&A. And it was quite a long time. And, and I think, and I saw Bjorn and he looked really happy. And I was so okay. super pleased to see him that, yeah. you know, we did this journey and came out on the other side and it felt like, he was really happy about it. And it was so important yeah. that it is so important that it's a film, that it is his film. Good to hear. And uh, it, it's a fantastic documentary. It really is. So thanks for talking to me and good luck with it. Nice meeting you. Cheers. Yes, directors Christina Lindstrom and Christian Petri talking to me there about The Most Beautiful Boy in the World, a new documentary that's on selected cinema releases this weekend. And it is a sad but an intriguing watch that is it for this week my thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show next week I'm having a little breather so I'm going to bring you some of the highlights of the year so far which includes everything from chats with Ray Fiennes to Neil Jordan so tune in for that just remind you this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm even though it was on the radio at 9pm this week due to the Lions coverage have a good week Take care.